I'm in a bar in Brooklyn, listening as two men, my friends, discuss whether or not my life is worth living. Jay is to my left and Colin to my right. Colin, an ethical philosopher trained in my same doctoral program, argues a vision for a better society, one where a body like mine would not exist. The men debate this theory, speaking through me. This is common, both the argument and the way I'm forgotten in it. The window in front of me frames scenes from the street. Groups of people, unified in exuberant movement, pass by like rowers on a river, propelling themselves swiftly into their Friday night. I wish for one person to stop and meet my gaze, wave me up from my seat and out to the sidewalk, inviting me to follow them into a more fun future. None do. I don't want to be with these men at this bar anymore. I think to fake a phone call, to fill my vacant face with false concern, then walk out, slip into the stream of people, disappear. I'm not so far from home. I imagine myself already there, leaning to kiss the forehead of my sleeping son, collapsing in my own bed, drawing my hand across my husband's shoulders, but habit and exhaustion limit me. I am humiliated again. Welcome to season four of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. Thank you for supporting authors and booksellers and each other. We've just heard a short excerpt from the opening of Easy Beauty by Chloe Cooper-Jones. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and a professor of philosophy and her groundbreaking memoir about disability, motherhood, and a journey to far-flung places in search of a new way of seeing and being seen is available from your favorite independent bookseller. For the podcast, Chloe spoke with Dev Ramsawak, a disabled and non-binary writer, activist, and podcaster who covers topics such as disability justice, sexual health, race, and gender. Their award-winning short film, Fluid, won TVO's Short Doc Contest and is available to watch online. Here's their conversation. I just want to start off by saying that um, that opening was just so a little bit chilling for me as a disabled person to to recognize that experience of just finding yourself in a situation where somebody is just debating some aspect of your life. just so insensitively, uh, you know, in front of your face, uh, and you just sort of like, I was just here for a drink. <laughs> and so, yeah, this your your book Easy Beauty is um, very very relatable um, for for my experience as a disabled person, um, and I'm really excited to be here talking with you um, about about it. Um, uh, would you like to start off by um, telling us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, and um, before we get into your book? Um, actually, I, I want if it's okay, I want to just ask you about something you just said and, and 
sort of come back to it because I think it's really important. Um, people who are less familiar with disability in their own lives will look at this first sentence or will talk to me about a lot of my experiences and find it so hard to believe. Um, I've had people say, I can't imagine that anyone would say that your life is less worth living. And then every disabled person that I talk to is like, oh yeah, of course, like <laughs> this is this is a very common experience and not in any way a new argument. And certainly in the course of the book, um, a lot of the things that may seem surprising to maybe able-bodied people or just people who are not as familiar or don't immerse themselves in a disabled community as much. Some of these instances of interactions with strangers and the ways that they can speak to disabled people feel very shocking to them, but to me feels unbelievably ordinary and commonplace. And so it seems like that's sort of what you were saying. Um, maybe I'm misinterpreting you, but can you, yeah, is that is that right to you? Yeah, you know, as you're saying that, that is definitely something I've noticed, you know, moving in and out of disability justice spaces. Um, when you're around disability community, some of these experiences seem just like so obvious. And so, <laughs> you know, this is every day, this is life. Um, and then you leave those spaces and you find yourself having a casual conversation and you are sort of like, yeah, this happened to me. And someone's like, what? Mm -hmm. I can't believe someone would do that. And it's like, what do you mean? That's, that's just yeah. life. Um, and I think, I'm glad you brought that up. Like this, for me, Easy Beauty was a, a familiar experience. It was a very like, oh, I have felt some of these things. I have uh, experienced some of these things. Um, it's, it felt very much like, oh, I could know this person. I could be, <laughs> I feel like, we would have a lot to say to each other. And so I'm glad we are having. Yeah. Now, you know, me speak. now. <laughs> yeah. Because, But I know for, for many folks, this is going to be very new and um, very shocking uh, as you said before. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd like to, um, yeah, maybe start off with uh, it, what what do people need to know about you before entering this this work? I mean, what do they need to know? They don't need to know anything um, at all about me before they enter this work. What I would want people to know is um, that it is really intended to be an open conversation with any reader that it is very much about the disability experience, but that it's also about the experience of, of having things that create an insularity for you or a desire to withdraw from the world. So I talk a lot about in the book, this sort of feeling of wanting to withdraw from painful realities. And that's both literally literal, physical, painful realities that come as part of my disability, but also, of course, emotional difficulties or spaces of um, discomfort for me. And so much of the book is about sort of me trying to balance between those two spaces. And 
of both presence and withdrawal. And I think those are all questions that are relevant to just being alive. And so, and also just doing the difficult work of navigating your body in public, which is everybody's work. And that work is really different for everyone. And so I don't in any any way want to conflate experiences or say like everybody's experiences is all the same, like it's not, but I do really hope that this book feels like a genuine and open conversation that any reader could find um, some, hopefully like something that was relatable to them or something that they saw about themselves in the book. So that's one thing I would really want people to know. Um, The book is also very much about art and I studied philosophy for many years. I taught philosophy for many years. And so the sort of history of the way in which philosophers or certain theorists have thought about the concept of beauty, not just in the body or human beauty, but any way in which we use that term beauty. So it's such an interesting word because we use it in so many ways, right? You, I call my child beautiful. I call my dog beautiful. I call a sunset beautiful. I call a great meal beautiful. I even will call sometimes a a failed attempt beautiful. You know, I'll go, oh, that was a beautiful mistake. Or like, you tried so hard, beautiful attempt, but you know, you messed it up or something. Uh, we call so many, we identify so many different phenomenon in our world um, as experiences of beauty. And the book is really trying to track that concept as well and turn it around and around um, in my, you know, the way that I'm thinking about it in my mind, but also hopefully turn it around in the mind of the reader and invite them into that conversation. You use philosophy a lot uh, within mm-hmm. the work. And I that was something that I noticed uh, that you used as sort of a, a narrative tool uh, to, to, to tell this narrative also through the lens of, of philosophy and, and revealing the different theories around beauty as you are ha- sharing your experiences. Um, and I was wondering, um, aside from, you know, that being your field of study, like why, why did you choose to, to weave in um, all of these philosophical theories um, throughout mm-hmm. the work? Because I really wanted to capture the way my brain processed problems. Um, the book is a very much me trying to solve a problem with myself in that I'm so at the beginning of the book, I'm so profoundly withdrawn from my own reality, which includes my family, my son. And I see the way that that's affecting him. And I see the necessity of, you know, that I must change this thing about myself. And I don't really know how. And I also really wanted to write a book that was all about that struggle of wanting to make a change and not knowing how. Sometimes I read books, really beautiful memoirs or or nonfiction, where the writer is sort of writing from the place of achieved knowledge and then kind of going back in hindsight. And and they seem so so smart and so competent. They've got everything figured out. And and they're these like perfect allies of their communities. And I'm like, wow, this is great. But like, how did you get there? 
And for me, I wanted to write a book that was all really a hundred percent in the midst of struggle to try to be uh, more self-accepting, to try to be more present in my family and in my community and to be more educated about my own community, something that I had and my identity, something that I had really avoided because it meant facing head on the ways in which I was excluded from spaces or that people's prejudices had shaped my life and my reality. And those things are hard to look at and they're hard to really process. So the human mind often wants to avoid that discomfort. And I did that quite well for most of my adult life until um, I saw the need to shift these things for my son. So to, you know, all of that goes in answering this question, like about why philosophy? Well, I wanted to really put on the page the way it feels for a mind to work out problems. And that meant that I was writing in a way, I structured the book very intentionally in a way where you are moving constantly from the present moment of what I'm, you know, where I am physically and what I'm observing to a memory that sort of pops itself up into the present moment. So you have these constant sort of collisions of the past and the present in the book. And then also the fact that my whole life I've been reading theory and I've been reading literature and I've been engaged in art and all of those things have formed a narrative. They are lenses through which I see the whole world. And those lenses have shaped the way I can interact with people and the way that I think about myself. So I needed to also interrogate those lenses. Are they useful tools? Are they actually tools in which I was using other theories to build a sort of scaffolding to protect myself further? If I if they're useful tools, how are they useful? How are they helping me reframe my thinking? And could they be useful tools for anyone else? So it just wouldn't be a very authentic book if I didn't talk about those things, because that's the vast majority of my inner life is thinking about the things that I've engaged with in art and in academia and how all of those things have really necessarily created and expanded, but also limited how I can think about myself and other people in the world. So to leave all that out, it would have been um, a really important layer of my story would be absent. That being said, just really quickly, like just for anyone who's listening, like it's not a philosophy book. Don't worry. Like sometimes people, sometimes people see the word philosophy associated and they're just like, oh my God, I hate philosophy. And I have this horrible philosophy teacher and it's so boring. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like I really, really, really try to only bring in theories that are useful tools for understanding the experience that I'm having or the the encounters that I'm having or the ways in which I'm rethinking through, you know, my perceptions or my false beliefs. So it is very sparing. It's not, it's not like, don't worry. (laughs) I just don't want to scare anyone who hates philosophy, which is a lot of people um, for fair reasons. (laughs) <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. uh, I, I've definitely used to be one of those, those people. Um, but I found within, uh, easy beauty, uh, the, 
the ways in which you use philosophy, it's not, you know, that dense, opaque sort of mm -hmm. language. It's very accessible um, and it is very purposeful and is just adds this extra layer of understanding, which I really appreciated. Um, and I actually, when I was reading it, it sort of reminded me of The Good Place uh, in a little <laughs> bit because uh, The Good Place does a similar thing in which it's exploring the idea of what is a good life, what is, you know, what does it mean to be good through all of these philosophers, um, but it makes all of those dense academic, super difficult to follow texts um, more accessible and makes it into something that um, was something I you would find yourself wondering and or at least for myself mm -hmm. are the types of things I, I do find myself thinking about and wondering and to have these extra layers, it, it made a philosophy more accessible to me and it made it more enjoyable. Uh, and maybe that's just because of the relatability of, you know, having it woven into these experiences, not just with disability, but moving through this world, our current modern times um, with those questions. Well, I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited you said that because of course I want everyone to fall in love with philosophy. <laughs> I mean, but I do think philosophy at its core is, you know, the, the history of philosophy is people walking around asking questions about what it means to be alive, what it means to be good, as you say, with the field of ethics. What does it mean to live a good life? What does it mean to do the right or wrong thing? How do we even make decisions about right or wrong? What is What does it mean when I say I know something versus I think or believe something? Like, what is justice? What is love? What is beauty? All these questions are so vital to our existence. And it's the thing that humans do that sort of articulates the vastness of our, our minds and what we're capable of is that we get to walk around and question the unknowable. And that's really what philosophy is. It should feel so essential and urgent to people to be engaged critically in these questions about their existence and their place in the world, the way they think and the way they act or perceive other people. I think everyone in the world would be would be very well served with an excellent philosophy class. The problem is, is that um, that's not always how it's taught. And some of these texts are quite boring and, and really difficult. And I would always say to my students, when I would give them these texts, I would be like, these are hard for me. Like they're hard for me to read. Like they're just difficult, dense things. And if you don't have the right conduit into it, it can feel so exclusionary. It can feel almost like elitist to even approach. And that's so sad because it's like, there's nothing elitist about, in fact, there's nothing more human, more universally human than these questions of why, why and how, and what am I doing here? And so I really, I would, it's not, you know, it wasn't like necessarily the intention of the book to go around and get people excited about philosophy, but if it's a strange you know, offshoot of what happens, like, I'd be so thrilled. I love philosophy. I really believe in its power. Um, I think it just has some bad marketing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I think that is just a mark of um, 
passion and great storytelling to get somebody excited about things that they normally wouldn't be just because that's what it brings to you. Um, and I really did feel that while reading Easy Beauty, it was, you know, I was interested. I was like, oh, tell me more. You know, <laughs> I love these ideas of of beauty and, and all of that. And um, that's a great question. So I think there are a lot of things that that make beauty urgent to me. One is that I am just utterly fascinated by this mysterious human experience that is often called the aesthetic experience, which, you know, can be described as that moment where maybe you're walking around a museum or maybe you're flipping through a book or maybe the radio is on or maybe you turn you're driving a car and you turn a corner and suddenly you see or hear something that speaks to you so singularly and you have like a physical reaction to it i don't know if you have had this experience i think you know most of us have in some in one way or another you see a sunset or you hear a great dance song and suddenly there's like a literal physiological response for me, like my heart might race a little bit, my eyes widen, I feel flush. I might even feel like, you know, goose flesh and tingles. I get a little excited. My focus intensifies. But also I've had this feeling in which in the presence of beauty where I feel like it is in some way teaching me something about my own mind and the way that I think that other forms of communication don't always accomplish. And I think part of it is because it's always a surprise to sort of be in the presence of, of beauty. And that, that incredible experience is so central to being human. It's very mysterious to me. And I also think it's one of the most incredible parts of being alive. And in the book, I talk about Plotinus, um, a Neoplatonist philosopher who had this explanation that when you are having that experience, it's a little bit of your soul, which he, you know, kind of has a, a more literal idea of than we necessarily need to have. We can think about the soul in a lot of ways. Um, but he said, it's a little bit of your soul rendered tangibly out there in the world. And that the thing you're feeling is kinship. And I just love that idea because I've, you know, I've read a book or I've encountered a poem or I've looked at a painting or I've heard a song and I've had this moment where I'm like, I'm being understood or I'm understanding this person in a way that I cannot put into language and I can't even fully consciously grasp onto, but I recognize some connection between utterly disparate minds. And that is an incredible thing about being human. Like that's so cool. And, you know, I love like at the beginning of this, you know, recording, you said, oh, I read your book and I thought we could be friends. We would know each other. And like, I've had that experience too, where I go, oh, this person is speaking to me as though they know me, but they don't, but there's some, there's some essential human connection that's being made. And I've had that experience looking at a brush stroke, you know, and it was just like, 
I see something of my soul in this thing. And that teaches me so much about just being alive and being human. And that's something that's been essential to every culture. So it's like anthropologists look, you know, at, at every culture across time and what they see over and over and over and over again are an attempt to make a language, some form of representational language and some form of representational artwork, whether it's cave paintings, whether it's flutes made out of, you know, twigs, whether it's games, whether it is, uh, you know, making baskets, whatever it is, like people keep making art and they keep telling stories because there is something just absolutely essentially human about seeking out that aesthetic experience of beauty. But then the second thing is more personal. I think that if, if I, I'll just speak for myself, but I think maybe other people might feel this way. If you're not consciously interrogating what you think is beautiful or why you think whatever beauty is, like if you're not consciously interrogating it, then all this social messaging that you're fed all day long is going to start to seep into your concept of beauty or what you should prioritize as beautiful. And there's so many different ways in which that happens. For the disabled body, there aren't a lot of avenues for cultural saturation of value. I didn't grow up seeing the disabled body as being exalted in any form as a, as a interesting experience or like a, a beautiful experience. I have only seen it, especially when I was younger, I think things are changing a little bit, but I only saw it as a receptacle for other people's pity. And I think that if we're not sort of carefully interrogating these sort of ideas about beauty, then we lose a little bit of control. And for me, very personally, I needed to look at these concepts so that I could shift my own sense of myself, my own sense of my own body in the world, but also so that I could start looking at all these forms of beauty that I was neglecting myself. Like, like my, you know, the book ends with my husband's just making coffee in the morning and like the incredible sounds of that act of care for me, which is something that I would not at the beginning of the book would not be able to recognize or feel or see. So by doing, when I say like, you can gain some control, like by looking at this concept more carefully, I've gained so much more control over what I want to prioritize as beautiful in my own life. But that doesn't happen automatically. It only happens through engaging really seriously with these questions about what beauty is, what we're taught about beauty, what are the narratives, who's left out of it, what experiences are left out of it, or forms of art are left out of it, and why. And so I find that to be a really personally useful experience, but I think there are broader positive implications of that. Um, that interrogation as well. Yeah, I, I feel like I could talk to you about beauty and um, what that means and how to find it for hours with you. Um, but I'll um, one thing that you mentioned previously was um, yeah, talking about uh, feeling like kinship and and beauty. Um, 
or finding beauty in kinship. Or, um, and I felt while reading Easy Beauty, I felt like this, it was also about community and about our relationships within community. Um, and so, especially uh, with regards to disability community, I felt like, mm-hmm. um, you know, you begin with um, your relationship to these uh, two men who both experience depression among um, other other things. Um, and, you know, that being a, a disability relationship, but also, you know, um, how there are different, still different experiences and still different ways that we relate to each other, even within the disability community. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about like um, how you feel about um, or how it's been for you to connect with disability community um, and to create those relationships and, and the different ways they can go. Well, it's been it's been an incredible experience for me to learn so much more about the history of disability, for one, to read the work or study the work of the really important activists that have shaped the rights that I enjoy now in my life in the U.S., um, and to also look at people who are still engaged very seriously in this work and pointing out how far behind disability still is in terms of really having a full set of rights or or having even a a real place at the table. And that's been such a powerful experience for me, but I came to it very late in life. I didn't have a sense of community or a sense of belonging to the disability community very, you know, until I was an adult, not because I wouldn't have been welcomed. I I think I absolutely would have been welcomed, but because I really had this fear that as soon as you call yourself something, somebody just puts all of their ideas about that thing on you. And as soon as I said, yes, I'm a disabled person, which I can't hide it. I'm a very visually disabled. So this idea that I wouldn't claim it is completely absurd. And it was a unbelievably self-defeating thing. But I had this idea for a long time that what I needed to do was wait for people to unsee my body and then to like see the real me. And I got that idea because a lot of times people would say, after they'd gotten used to me for, you know, able-bodied people would, after they'd gotten used to, you know, watching me walk or, or just the sort of, you know, unusualness of my physical presence, they would say, you know, I just realized I don't even notice your disability anymore. I'm not even thinking about it anymore. And I would go, oh, good. Now you're thinking about me. Now you're going to think about this real me. And now we can have a connection. Um, the irony of that, of course, is that <laughs> my body is me. <laughs> it's like there is no real me outside of my body. Those, my interiority, my exteriority are uh, have a complicated but very permanent relationship to each other. And so for me to want to hide one or to act as though one didn't exist was not only really self-defeating, but was a complicated act of self-erasure. 
And it also left me so alone and so isolated because I wasn't seeking out people who could help me understand this relationship. I would just try so hard to get people to forget about it. So they'd stop staring at me or asking me invasive questions. I mean, the idea, if you had told me 10 years ago that I was going to be writing a whole book about this, I would have been very uncomfortable with that. But the thing you learn, and this is such an obvious thing maybe to you and, and to all smart people, but it was really hard for me to learn is um, once I started to have some sort of real self-acceptance and have some sort of authentic relationship, both to my personal disability, but the disability community and history at large, I became a much more open present and authentic person to be around. And then that gave the able-bodied person that I met or was hanging out with a sort of permission for them to be more authentic and to be more themselves. And then guess what? We connected faster, you know, like, so this thing I wanted so desperately for my whole life, it's like, I was the thing in my own way. It was like my own internalized ableism and my own internalized fears and also the desire to evade the difficulties of talking about my body or facing people's bad ideas about it or, or lack of education about it. Like that's all a lot of emotional labor, intellectual and emotional labor. And I didn't always want to do it because sometimes I just wanted to be at a bar with my friends or sometimes I just wanted to go to the grocery store. I didn't want to like take on my body in public at the bodega. You know, it's like not always the work you want to do, but but it was, um, if I didn't do it at all, if I permanently excused myself from that work, I could recognize very quickly, you know, that I was somewhat complicit in people's bad, bad beliefs or their lack of education. And I do really think becoming a mother helped so much for me to, to sort of wrestle with that because one day I took my son to school and I gave him over to educators that I really hoped would help him make his way in the world. And yet I was so unwilling to sometimes do that same sort of careful and generous and empathetic acts of education for anyone else about, about differences. So that that's really helped me reframe my thinking, but it's been, it's been a long road. And I'm still on it. I don't, you know, I don't in any way end this book like a perfect, fully actualized human. I just, I just end the book with someone, you know, as somebody who's really trying um, and continues to try. You know, I'm getting goosebumps um, listening to you because <laughs> this experience is actually so familiar to me. So um, I, I was born with spina bifida um, mm -hmm. and a particular kind where um, if I'm fully clothed and I'm sitting down, I'm not moving, you can't really tell I'm disabled, but once I start walking around or you see the, the scar on my back or mm. anything like that, you start to clue in, like there's something not quite right about this person. And I've had this disability my whole life. Um, it wasn't until my twenties, I actually did identify as disabled for a long time, I would say, well, I'm not that disabled. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, but 
it was something I did really avoid identifying with. And because of that, it kept me from community and it kept me from understanding myself and my needs. And that journey of, you know, accepting yourself and finding community and being able to relate those needs, have them be met, you know, or even just have someone consider them in an offhand way where you don't have to ask or, you know, or they aren't making assumptions about what you need or don't need or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And being able to start treating yourself and treating others in that way, you know, that is a journey that I am on. And I definitely agree with you in that once you get to live as yourself, um, others around you get that permission um, as well. It's sort of in the way that like, yeah, I will state my needs as um, a physically disabled person or an autistic person to uh, someone non-disabled and they will realize those are needs that they may also have and totally on a, yes yeah. on their own spectrum and are have permission to ask for um mm-hmm. and there's no shame in requiring them and when you you move through life without that shame of asking it gives mm-hmm. permission people to ask for themselves and allows us to just accept that we're never going to be able to just know anything about somebody um just by their existence you know mm-hmm. we have to be open to this broad spectrum for every human being we come into cuz all of our experiences can be so vastly different or so vastly similar it's yeah really incredible. Yeah, I completely agree with everything you're saying. And, um, and I think it's, it's such a powerful thing to be more honest about what you need, and to look at why you're afraid of asking for those things. And I've had this experience that you're saying where it's like, I think, you know, I have a pain disorder. So I'm often in a lot of pain. And I sometimes will be really uncomfortable or embarrassed to talk about what I need. And then there's so many times that then the person I'm talking to is like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm in pain. This chair does suck. Like this is like my spine it hurts too. Or I talk, I was talking about um, going to being afraid of going to like concerts and spaces that are not very accessible, both because of the standing that is very hard for me, but also because I'm extremely short. So any sort of public space in which like standing and seeing over people is a thing. Like I don't do well in those spaces. And I was talking about trying to just go to this concert anyway. And, and I was talking to a friend of mine who is like the strongest, most fit, like athletic, like just, you know, gym rat type guy who like runs miles. And he was like, Oh, I can't go to concerts anymore. Cause my knees are like I, my knees and my back are so bad. So he was experiencing the same sort of fear or worry about his body in that space, even though physically we couldn't be more different. Um, And that doesn't mean that our experiences are the same, my friend and I, but, but we can find these points of connection um, and these moments of seeing each other. And we became closer in that moment by just being very open and honest about these things where otherwise I 
you know, previously just hid this so much from others. So I'm so glad you told me all that and, um, and that these experiences are relatable to you or familiar to you. Yeah. I mean, we are, I think we have very different lives. We have different disabilities um, and all of that, but there are definitely a lot of overlaps and, you know, I think it just made me so happy that there was somebody out there expressing these experiences um, so that there was something I could point people to and be like, hey, if you want to learn a little bit more about what I go through, like somebody talks about it in here, you know, mm. right now, my my copy is all like highlighted because I'm like, <laughs> oh, this is something I want, you know, to share with folks later and and things like that. So um, yeah, I, I, I really loved how it, it touched on so many things that are, they're more universal than I think folks realize. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street. And wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. I didn't realize until I started reading it how so much of media had trained me to assume that if there was a disabled character, that they would have this um, sort of almost divine quality to them. Uh, And what I mean by that is that they are like, they don't want to sin. They don't want to do the bad thing. They, Mm -hmm. they are these people who are full of wisdom um, and they've never done anything wrong. And they've, you know, they don't do anything bad and they live this very pristine life. Mm -hmm. And that's not my experience. That's not Mm -hmm. how I live. Uh, it's not the lives of any of the disabled people that I know, but I realized I, as I was reading Easy Beauty, it was like, it was, con- it forced me to confront all of these assumptions I was making about the media I was about to consume because there, I found it is so rare to get representation of disabled people where they are just as messy and just as, you know, trying to figure things out and learning things and um, being, you know, the kids with dyed hair and piercings and getting stick and poke tattoos in their friends' basements, you know, (laughs) I, yeah, I have my own and it's like, wow, this is the first time I've really felt like I am getting representation that actually fits what my experience is um, because it isn't this completely different life um, to other people. It's just this added layer to life. And I just, yeah, it was, did you have any sort of representation like that um, before you wrote this book that you could look to? No. No, absolutely not. And I mean, it was so important to me that I was really 
honest um, about the full extent of my my character, which is good and bad, and a mess and and competent and um, fearful and selfish and loving and all the things that people are. And I, first of all, the vast majority of disability, first of all, there's not that many disability narratives that exist, especially in wider culture. And when they do exist, there is such a heavy emphasis on um, the disabled person as, and you said divine, but it's like, yeah, this like magical little disabled person who's full of wisdom and who are slightly childlike. I think we usually get sexless, you know, people without desire or agency. And then we usually die at the end, you know, they kill us off so that like the able-bodied person, the narrative can reclaim their own sense of life. And spoiler alert, I don't die in this book. I live, I have sex, I have agency, I'm flawed. I get a bad tattoo that I love. I'm a good and bad mother. I'm a good and bad friend. I'm a good and bad wife and daughter and, and all of these things. And um, it was so important to me to make sure that I wasn't trying to protect myself or, or give you the best version of myself or a filtered version of myself. And most of all, not necessarily an inspirational version of myself because disabled people, I think to put yourself in that box is deeply dehumanizing, not just to me, but to other disabled people. I think I have read narratives even by disabled writers where I'm thinking, I don't think you're doing us any favors by playing playing as if you're just full of all this wisdom to give to able-bodied people to teach them about how their lives are so easy and great or whatever. And the thing that I, the one rule I had for myself with this book is I couldn't write anything that made other disabled people's lives seem further othered. Like that couldn't be that couldn't happen. That was the thing I had to work the hardest for because the story of my life is not very important. Okay. Who nobody cares about any single random person in Brooklyn's one, one little life. Right. But what did matter was I could ask readers to spend 288 pages deep in the mind and the lived reality of a very real person who also has a disability and also has a very full life. And my hope is that that time spent with me closes that feeling that the disabled life is so weird and foreign and meant to be pitied or inherently less valuable. So my sincere hope is that that shifts people's concepts of the disabled life and mind, even, even a centimeter toward toward a more nuanced vision. Um, and I could not do that if I put some sort of carefully protected layer between myself and the reader. And I had this friend when I first started writing the book, I had this friend who I was telling him about the sale and, and I said, well, I'm going to, um, you know, I'm going to write it. And I think I'm going to talk about some kind of hard things. And he said, oh, everyone will be so sympathetic to you. And I said, well, why do you think they'll be so sympathetic to me? And he was like, come on, like you're just, everyone's going to be so simple. And I just remember going, I'm going to make sure not everyone's sympathetic to me. I'm going to make sure that people are really just seeing a real 
person make mistakes and struggle and try to be better, um, which has its own sort of hopeful quality to it, that this is a book about about trying to grow and expand as a person. Um, but that assumption that like every reader is just going to come in and be like, oh, this precious little magical divine disabled person is going to give me wisdom for my life and then die hopefully. And then, you know, it's like, I didn't, no, 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 that's not what I wanted. Um, but it's not easy to write. It's not necessarily so easy to write that. So honestly, but it felt really important. Yeah, I I really appreciated it as someone who, yeah, there aren't a lot of narratives that represent um, many facets of, of my identity. And there is a pressure to sort of be the perfect uh, representation to, to do a good job of, um, you know, showing the best sides of us mm -hmm. um, and to, to not make anybody else's life harder. And I think that it does really backfire because it just makes everyone hold us to a different standard yeah. uh, and expect this perfection from all of us. And I really appreciated this room to be messy and to be like, I learned all of this wisdom through mistakes, through, um, you know, doing the wrong thing or being selfish or, you know, being angry about mm -hmm. what I am going through. And I yeah. think that's such an important piece of the conversation. I'm really glad that you, you were adding. Thank you. Thank you. I love that. I'm like, I'm so grateful and um, for your very generous read. And it's such a funny thing to be like, thank you. Thank you for seeing me as, as a total mess. You know, It's like, thank you for recognizing that I mess up constantly and make horrible mistakes, <laughs> but it's absolutely true. Um, and I hope that feels um, like for readers that I am very sincere in the kinds of conversations I want to have with them. And I don't want to meet them anywhere, but um, on the same very real and very human level. Yeah. Um, there was something that you mentioned earlier about uh, your friend uh, suggesting that everyone will be sympathetic to you. Um, and this is something that comes up within um, easy beauty, I think, in terms of um, being able to use uh, the the disability card, so to speak, um, to elicit sympathy, to get a little bit of protection or a little bit of leeway on on things. Um, but as I was reading it, I was sort of wondering: Do you feel like all disabled people are able to access that card, like to be able to play that card and for me, I'm coming at this from a, a race perspective as in, mm -hmm. you know, would a darker skinned um, disabled person be able to, um, you know, you have your Girl Scout cookies uh, anecdote within uh, the, the, you know, selling the extra, the extra cookies um, for your own profit and being caught um it made me wonder um, 
yeah, like, is this something that I would have been able to get away with or even have the extra boxes to begin with? Um, Well, I think it's a really good question. And the answer is obviously no, not everybody has the same experience um, of being able to use whatever the body means to other people. Like that's always very specific. And the thing my mother, you know, says to me in this book is she wants to protect me. Um, And so she says, just use your card. And her idea of that is that you gain some power when you understand the ways in which people are going to see you. And that's always very different. I think um, for me, it's I have just, I think, largely, maybe even more than my disability, my size has caused people to infantilize me, um, to treat me like I'm a living doll. Strangers will hug me. They'll touch my face. They will pick me up. um, They will physically uh, intimidate me. They will put themselves in positions of power over me. And I think my disability plays a role in that. But I also think it's like largely because I'm very, very small. People find smallness or people with dwarfism as as comic, absurd, or malevolent forces. Those are the ways in which people of my stature are treated in their day-to-day life. Um, I've experienced a very wide range of responses to my body because of that whether it be a desire to sort of create a sort of violent presence around me or a desire to laugh at me as if I'm there to be the jester. Um, And my mother really wanted me to be aware of how that factors into every single aspect of my life. Um, She's Filipino and she grew up largely in Kansas. So she had a very in a very white, small farm town. So her relationship um, to what people thought of her is, is really important to how she understands, you know, this idea of playing a card. And I think it's just, of course, it's always different for all of us. And it's always different in every sort of perspective um, and context that we're in. I think for me, the Girl Scout example is like, I didn't get caught because absolutely nobody thought I had a brain cell in my head. Like nobody thought I was smart. Nobody thought I could keep track of boxes. Like the lowered expectations or the lowered ceiling, um, that is something that has followed me around my whole life. That's a really dehumanizing, horrible set of ways to think about yourself. The flip side is I could get away with a lot because everybody thought I was incapable of having, you know, any sort of creative or or critical thought. And so I could manipulate that in situations. But one thing that I think about in the book is how problematic that is when I, I, I'm very sympathetic to my mother's desire to teach me how to protect myself, especially as a mother. There is this gut feeling where you go, I don't care what the implications of this. I want to keep my child safe. But to use that card, and I talk about this very explicitly in the book, it doesn't do other people who look like me or have disabilities that cause people to have lowered expectations of them, doesn't do them any favors. It is an absolute 
buying into that infantilization. And yes, I use it in this one instance, in this like limited short-sighted instance to help me get the thing I want. But so much of that experience is me trying to figure out, well, what are the bigger ramifications of this? Like, sure, I got into this VIP area, but am I just perpetuating these horrible stereotypes that I that have such negative effects on my own life? So I think that's part of the whole book is I'm just constantly sort of struggling with my relationship to these things and what where my position of privilege and disadvantage shifts just geographically step-by-step, space-by-space. And then also what that means in terms of how we can become, when we use these sort of things to our advantage, how we can be complicit in hurting other people who who are also going to encounter these things. So it's definitely something I grapple with quite a bit in the book. Yeah. And, you know, I think that speaks to how this book is relatable uh, along so many lines and not just disability and that um, what you said about your mom wanting to protect you, it feels like such a critical second gen immigrant experience uh, when your parent comes over, especially in earlier times where there was a lot more racism, a lot more prejudice um, around them. Uh, that they had to to live with, you know, uh, they want to protect you from that. And so sometimes they are, they, they accidentally perpetuate the same ideas, <laughs> yeah. because they know that's what other people are going to do to you. And mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult. And it's a struggle, but it's, it's an experience that I think a lot of people can really identify with. Um, who aren't disabled or who aren't part of the disability community. And yeah, I think that just speaks to um, how these experiences aren't limited to identity. They aren't limited to um, one aspect to ourselves or another. There's a lot of ways that we can relate to each other, even if we don't experience the world the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of the this book is me shifting the way I think through things depending on what new layer of my life is forcing me to think about it. So as a kid hearing my mom say, you know, use your card, I would go, great. Absolutely. I can't wait to manipulate these Girl Scouts <laughs> think so little of me. But now as a mother, I think, wow, how painful that is for her to, to worry or to be fearful of the ways in which their child is going to be vulnerable in the world. And I think about that with my son who doesn't have a disability, but is still this, you know, my heart walking around in a body outside in the world. So every single ounce of me wants to throw out nuance or thoughtful consideration and just protect, protect, protect. And so it's that because I felt that now that impulse with my own child and my own relationship to motherhood, it completely reframes the way I think about my mother and how hard her job was and how well she did it. Um, And I don't, I just admire how willing she was to try really hard to think through the right thing. And that doesn't mean 
She always told me the right thing, but she was always someone who was trying so hard to figure out what it meant um, for me to be out in the world. And she doesn't have a disability. So she it's not as if I can look to her model precisely either. So it's a strange, you know, it's a really strange, complicated thing and a very human thing. And yeah, the book is trying really hard to be honest about that, that messiness and that nuance and the complexity and that I don't get it right. My mom doesn't get it right. Maybe nobody, maybe somebody, maybe you get it right. I don't know. Somebody's getting it right somewhere, but. Oh, it's um, not me. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think I'm getting the questions right. And that's what the book is trying to do is ask more and more, not all the questions, but some of the right questions. Before I let you go, um, finally, um, is there anything else you would like to say about about your book, your experience, or, or anything else? No, I just want to say I'm really grateful to you and for these wonderful questions and this great conversation. And I, yeah, I, uh, I'm just very glad I got to do this this afternoon. So thank you. That was Dev Ramsawak in conversation with Chloe Cooper Jones about her acclaimed memoir, Easy Beauty. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Wilson.